You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine. It's Ben Folks. Ben, I haven't seen you for a while. I've been out of town. Catch me up. What did I miss? What was going on this week? Uh, there was a bear in my yard. No kidding. Really? Yeah. Uh, like a black bear, I assume? Apparently. It was in the middle of the night. I was asleep. My dog noticed it, ran outside, started barking like crazy. Uh, we yelled at him to come back inside. And then the next day, the neighbors said that there was a bear back there. So kind of had to apologize to the dog on that one. Okay, so uh, we're going to go ahead and say alleged bear then. There was some pretty... Some pretty strong bear evidence. Some specific as I it. eyewitness accounts from the neighbors. Yes. Do we consider them to be trustworthy sources? On this matter, at least. On the matter of wildlife in your backyard. Yes. But in other matters, we would have to question whether or not we could. Would you call him as a witness? Let's just put it that way. I mean, listen, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, if they told me they had found a, a great new trick that I could pull on my taxes and it was totally legal and the government just didn't want me to know about it, I'm not going to say I'd jump on that. Okay, so I might I might have some questions there, but on this black bear skepticism. thing, I consider them solid. Well, I've been driving a minivan around the Midwest, going to malls, malls of America. Oh, well, that's such an old man Dundas thing e- to do. Oh, I had the biggest old man Dundas week in Iowa, man. You would you would you would crap your pants eating, <laughs> eating corn on the cob. Basically, I doubt that. basically eating pork for every meal, corn on the cob. Driving my minivan around. Okay, tucking in the sack seven thirty eight o'clock at night. Did you jump in a quick? caucus like a re- republican primary caucus or yes, something yes i made sure that my vote will count Sweet. got out there and uh voted for Fuhrer Fuhrer Fiorino Fiorino who's the lady running yeah. for the for the republican <laughs> sounds like you will fit right in the iowa voters <laughs> uh ben i've been up since uh 3:30 a.m. central time I, come on man i don't even Throw stuff at me outside the one true time zone. I'm that supposed be, to do the math on that? That would be 2.30 a.m. our time. Okay. So just about the time you were bidding adieu to your ladies of the night uh, and probably calling it a, an evening, I was I was getting up and, and driving my minivan to the Des Moines airport. You mean to put some coffee on? I, I wouldn't turn it down. Run to the store, get you a rock star? That, that would be fine. Okay. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. Football season has only just begun, but it already feels like the playoffs at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site where millionaires are being crowned all season long. One-week fantasy at DraftKings means no season-long commitments. It's fantasy football on demand. Play where you want, when you want, with the players you want. And with a million bucks up for grabs every week, every game is the big game, and every play matters. So, first and ten in the first quarter feels like fourth and goal with one second left. And a long touchdown run could mean more than just a victory for your favorite team. It could mean you've just turned your love for football into a million-dollar payday. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Ben? Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME to play for free for a shot at $1 million. And this week's Millionaire Maker event, enter CME for free entry now, only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. 
I guess we should. Should we tell the people that we're at your house recording this? Sure. This week? I guess I just did, didn't I? Yeah. So maybe a I checked. We're out of coffee. So different. You didn't go anywhere. You were sitting there the whole time. I checked my brain. You went through your your uh, mental Rolodex. I was like, brain. Is there any coffee left? Nope. Solid. I. I Irrefutable. As cool Keith would say. I don't believe you. Go up there right now and see if you find some coffee. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast in round number one. Well, hey there, Phil Davis. Great to see you. Looking good, man. Still rocking that affliction, I see. And the pink shorts. Nice. Nice. So, hey, what you been up to, buddy? And in round two, give Bellator credit for trying something new or old with the one night tournaments and the MMA and the kickboxing and the having the event seem fucking endless. But did Scott Coker's band misfit toys pull it off? And round number three, Josh Barnett and Roy Nelson will both be back in the city of Japan this weekend in one of those UFC heavyweight matchups between two dudes in their late thirties that somehow seems kind of perfect. All that plus just saying stuff. And are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Todd Twomey. He writes, am I the only one finding Dana White's silence regarding the Nick Diaz situation deafening? This to me, or this to me, this no way, this is no way to treat. And see, there's a typo in there in that sentence. That's what threw me off. Just make sure we can blame somebody who's not you. It says, this, to me, is no way to treat an employee. Strike that. Maybe this is how you treat independent contractors. Maybe this is how independent contractors are usually treated. I've been up for a long time. Yeah. Got you a mentioned that. I got a, a different angle on the computer also. It's harder to read. Making excuses. That's what you're doing right now. The you're first doing one, there, there, is, excuse there making. is. I have a cracked cranium, for starters, <laughs> and there is a typo in that one sentence. Uh, we have discussed last week when this was breaking news on the podcast. Obviously, Nick Diaz handled a, handed a ridiculous five year uh, ban by the Nevada State Athletic Commission for testing positive for marijuana around his most recent fight against Anderson Silva. Uh, ben, you and I discussed this in private, but Dana White, the UFC president, uh, has come out and said it doesn't matter what he thinks. The government capital T, capital G, doesn't care what he thinks. And if we've been around the sport long enough, we would know that, that, that the Nevada State Athletic Commission doesn't value his opinion. However, if we've been around the sport a little while, we also recall that Dana White has not been shy about voicing opinions about what the Nevada State Athletic Commission has done in the past. That's right. You know, and here is something that's interesting because – uh, he was in Australia with the big push for to promote the upcoming stadium show with Ronda Rousey and your girl, Joanna Champion. Uh, and so he was asked about it at a press conference there. And first, his explanation was basically like, hey, I've been out of the loop. I've been traveling to Australia. I don't really know what's going on here. Here's part of this quote from this. When this thing went down, we've been here, meaning Australia. And many people who know me and know the sport, I've been a very reactionary person in the past. I'm a little older and a little wiser now. I don't just react. I have to know all the facts. I don't know all the facts. Uh, so that's him saying his reasoning for saying that he's not going to really speak out on it yet, which I find odd because I remember being at the press conference right after GSP's last fight, uh, the one against Johnny Hendricks that was in uh, Las Vegas and... Dana White a little bit upset with the judging that gave Johnny Hendricks the win. Also seemed mostly upset at GSP for saying he was going to step away. And there Dana White showed up in a rage, yelling both about how GSP can't do that 
and also how the governor of Nevada needed to step in and overhaul the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Shortly after that point, I believe, is when Keith Kaiser resigned as executive director, by the way. Uh, he took but, that job in the AG's office. That's right. Uh, just doesn't need this headache anymore. <laughs> going to relax in the, in the, in the AG's office and, and kick up his heels a little bit. But in that press conference, I remember specifically uh, somebody, one of the Canadian media member guys, I don't remember exactly who, saying, don't you think maybe you should wait until GSP gets here and he can explain a little bit more about why he said the thing about stepping away uh, before you, you just condemn him like this? And Dana White said no, said basically the opposite of what he's saying here, that he did not need to know all the facts. And then later learned some facts and kind of changed his stance on it. Well, I mean, that so was... So I guess he's older and wiser yes, now was than he say, was like two years that ago. That was November 16th, 2013, back when he was a young, wild hothead, the Sonny Corleone of the UFC back then. Now he's Michael. Now he's saying. the Michael Corleone. He's got to get all the facts. So you're saying... pulling him back in. <laughs> what, you're, what you're saying is that... From here on out, we can expect zero reactionary rants yep, from yep, Dana well, White. I mean, he's saying that himself. He's, he needs all the facts these days. He's got to. Uh, he's a little bit more level-headed, a little bit more grown up. Speaking of driving a minivan around, uh, he's, he's. You know, I think probably his days of of being a rowdy pop off are, are probably over. Wouldn't right. you say? I'm gonna hit, hit start on this stopwatch, and we're gonna <laughs> see how long it goes. Yeah, what's the over under? Like the over under on Dana White having another? He's probably having one right now. We're just not <laughs> around to know that it's happening. All right, I'm, I there we go. Look at start. Okay, we're at two point four three seconds. I'm just gonna keep this thing going on my phone. CME listeners, the next time you hear Dana White reacting without knowing all the facts, hit me up immediately. I'm going to hit stop on this bad boy. We're going to see where we're at. Now, is it? are we oversimplifying it here if we just kind of go back to the well and once again reiterate that uh, the UFC, the level of, of either the UFC being upset with you or the level of the UFC universe having your back uh, – is directly related to whether or not you are about to make them a bunch of money because that seems to be what it is like if if you know if you are uh Nate Marquart and you you pull out of a fight because of your TRT like you get fired pretty much pretty much on the spot and right just because blasted on TV right because you were about to have a fight and make them money but because you couldn't go through with it and you're you're demonized but if you're Chael Sonnen and you have the fight and test positive after all the money has been made then eh, we're a little bit more cool with it. Like that seems to me kind of what's going on with Nick Diaz here. Like if the UFC felt like Nick Diaz was going to come right back and get in another big money fight for them, they would probably not take so kindly to the five year suspension is my guess. Yeah. Well, and might be a little more outspoken about it, but here's another thing about this that uh, I think it's been brought up to me lately with uh, people I'm talking to and different stories I'm working on is people are saying, you know what, if you want to talk about the need for some kind of a fighters association, the Nick Diaz situation proves that because who does he have that he can look to to speak out for him or to defend him a little bit? Like you said, the UFC's willingness to do that is kind of dependent or at least appears to be dependent on what you can do for the UFC after they do that, you know, and He's got his lawyers. He's got his his team that he's hired around him. They're going to probably pursue this thing in court, and I think that should be very interesting. But who else do you have? Like you have kind of a grassroots movement from some of the other fighters, uh, people pushing for you know a White House petition, people saying they won't fight in Nevada uh, anymore after this. 
but you don't have any organized fighter's voice to say, we think this is wrong and we, we seek redress for this. And this is a situation where you could use some kind of like unified uh, voice from the fighters to speak out for you because otherwise it's really hard for anybody to be a loud enough voice to make an impact. I mean, somebody like Ronda Rousey can kind of do it, but even she gets stopped short before she can make the won't fight Nevada anymore pledge. Next question this week comes from Stephen Arbuckle. He writes, ever since the admittedly absurd five-year ban handed out to Nick Diaz last week, is it fair to say that the romanticization of his contribution to the sport has gone as far over the top as the punishment was? He's an entertaining fighter, sure, but in his long career, he has only twice beaten anyone who at any point in their careers won a UFC belt or even became a genuine contender. Those were a flabby, undersized BJ Penn who subsequently dropped two weight classes and a young and inconsistent early version of Robbie Lawler way back in April of 2004. Is it possible that all the quote-unquote cult figures shit surrounding the Diaz brothers has led to Nick being more highly regarded than his achievements necessarily deserve Diaz-cuss? Oh, I see. see what he did there yeah. at the end? Uh, I can answer that last question and say yes, of course, uh, the Diaz brothers cult following leads them to be more highly regarded than their achievements necessarily deserve. But that's been the case for years. Also, let's look at uh, his actual record. I mean, I know you can point to a, a string of losses there, but you know, you have to go before you, his entrance into the UFC or his re-entrance into the UFC. You have to go all the way back to 2007 to find a, a loss that lost via cuts basically to, to KJ Noons. Um, and then you see, you know, you go all the way up through his time in Strike Force, where he had some great fights. That that fight against Paul Daly, still I regard as probably the greatest single round fight I've ever seen in MMA. But then this three fight skid that he's kind of ended on, Carlos Condit, which was a debatable decision, uh, George St Pierre, the greatest welterweight ever, um, not really a debatable decision, uh, and then Anderson Silva, the greatest middleweight ever, admittedly past his prime. Uh, and you know, not exactly a blowout, but probably not a questionable decision to anybody, but the Diaz people, I get what you're saying that, Hey, he gets treated like he's some kind of, uh, hero or icon or something. And his record might not necessarily earn him that level of adoration. A lot of it is kind of cult of personality, uh, for Nick Diaz, but at the same time, man, that ain't bad. Right. It's a, well, it's a very black and white crew over there on planet Diaz, like the Diaz supporters, uh, very kind of over the top in, in much the same way, maybe that Conor McGregor Irish supporters currently are today. I will say like we've talked about on the show, you can basically discredit anyone's mixed martial arts career, right? Like you can, you could go through and, and, and find a loophole with anyone's career where you could be like, well, Anderson Silva never fought nobody. Right. right. Uh, or George St. Paul, a math teacher and a one legged, right. Canadian. George St. Pierre was boring. Uh, Rampage Jackson beat a bunch of middleweights, which is the one that I so often employ here on the podcast because <laughs> that one holds water. But like you have to admit, like Stephen Arbuckle uses a very harsh metric here by which to judge Nick Diaz when he says in his long career, he has only twice beaten anyone who at any point in their career won a UFC belt or even became a genuine contender. I mean, first of all, because the guy wasn't really fighting in the UFC through the bulk of his career. All he did over in Strike Force was beat damn near everybody they threw at him. Uh, and then when you come to the UFC, the two guys who had the opportunity to hold the belt, as we say, in the weight classes where Nick Diaz fought a lot, 
Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre, uh, not a lot of people beat them. And there, there was not a lot of opportunity for people in those weight glasses to quote unquote become guys who won a UFC belt. So like, that's tough. Like how many welterweights could you say that about? Like this guy beat a guy who later became UFC champion. I, I think what we're saying here, and I think we're in agreement is that it's kind of a yes to both. Yes. Right. Yeah. People romanticize the guy uh, and his career and his accomplishments and make him out to be more of a giant on the MMA landscape than he is. Um, but also, yes, he was and is really good. Also, I think probably add to that equation the fact that the MMA community at large kind of likes to freak out about stuff, right? So we get handed this five-year ban for marijuana. Like, basically, you just wrapped up a Christmas present. Yeah. He's put it just under the tree. Like, straight up MMA Rosa Parks. At this point, yes. Put him on the $10 bill. Next question this week comes from Ryan Kane. He writes, how many quote-unquote fringe-level contenders in the UFC who may be upset with the Reebok deal, upset with their lack of being pushed for a title fight, rankings, etc., do you think watched the Bellator Dynamite show with guys like Phil Davis, Josh Thompson, and even Tito Ortiz and said, hey, that might be the better way to go. Phil Davis was maybe the first UFC transfer who was in his prime to shift to Bellator and made huge waves on the show. If I'm a UFC fighter who is unhappy with management or the reasons listed above, Above, I would definitely feel that Bellator be- is becoming more of a viable option. Phil, Josh Thompson, and Tito were so complimentary of Kevin Kay and Scott Coger that I can't help but think many UFC fighters will have their agents calling Scott, saying that they want in. Do you guys feel that this could be the case as well? Thanks. Uh, you know, I thought this too, actually, when we watched uh, somewhat discredited UFC contender Phil Davis, uh, who had recently had that loss to Anthony Johnson that felt awfully career-defining at the time that it happened. Uh, We watched him jump ship to Bellator and in one night win two pretty easy fights, become the number one contender for the... uh, the Bellator light heavyweight title. Uh, he has a, like a dangerous, but I think winnable fight against Liam McGeary coming up that, that where he'll probably be the favorite. And you're damn right. It crossed my mind in watching that, that there would be numerous, uh, I think what we call here, fringe level contenders from the UFC that would look at that performance uh, and and look at Phil Davis's claim that he that he's getting paid more money, that he's making a lot more money in sponsors uh, fighting in Bellator, and that that would start to look more attractive. And I think that like we've probably mentioned this on the show before in the last couple of months, but like that's kind of the environment that the UFC has created over the 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 you know this year, I guess, with the the Reebok deal and and um, the class action lawsuit and the the sort of. Uh, emails that it's been sending around about a fighters union. Like you couldn't blame anybody. I don't think from looking over at Bellator and, and at least, at least wondering what would be over there for them. You know, when I started to think about it, uh, you said watching Phil Davis did it for you. When I really started to think about that was when I heard uh, that Josh Thompson supposedly was making 35 grand in between three sponsors for this fight. That is Josh Thompson who exited the UFC on a three-fight losing streak to Benson Henderson, Bobby Green, and Tony Ferguson, just kind of a, a lightweight murderer's row there, uh, then goes to Bellator, fights Mike Bronzoulis. The Golden Greek. It's not really his nickname, but it, it ought to be. be. It should be. Uh, a, a, an easier fight, goes out there, wins a submission uh, in the third round, gets thirty-five grand just in sponsorships. That's when I would start to think, hmm, maybe... 
Maybe there's something to be said for what's going on over there in Bellator. I do think there's a lot more factors to consider, though, because I think some of it probably depends what weight class you're in, right? Because yeah. Bellator is one of those situations where some weight classes, fairly deep. They can find you some pretty good fights. Uh, and then other weight classes, there might just be absolutely nothing for you to do over there. There's also, though, it's not just as simple as having your agent go call up Scott Coker and say, what's up, we want in. Because as we've talked about this before, the UFC practice is generally to not let guys get to that free agency point uh, if they're at all interested in retaining their services. It's usually like you get to the point where you got one or two more fights left on your deal, and that's when the UFC starts talking about signing a new contract, getting you to an extension, because they don't want to get to a, a bidding war for your services. They don't want to get to a point where guys can can actually, without running the risk of like tortious interference, go to a different competitor and say, okay, what do you, what do you think I'm worth? They, it's much easier for them if they can say, here's what we think you're worth, say yes or no right now. And if you, know, if you say yes, then fine. You know, then you have a, a contract extension, even though they can still cut you whenever they want to. Uh, if you say no, though, and you got two fights left on your deal, and we've seen fighters do this. Roy Nelson uh, tried to do it. And they can make those two fights kind of tough on you. Yeah, or just let you sit there, which is the rumor that some people say is that well, if they you, can only contractually they can only let you the, sit there for so long, right? But the, the like the what I've heard is that if you turn down the, the that contract extension, they will let you sit as long as they possibly can before they give you two fights that they think that you will probably lose. Uh, which hey, man, we're talking about fighters union stuff. Uh, that that practice right there might be a good one for them to jump in on. I want to get to this Fedor question before we run out of time. Um, from Chris McComb, he writes, Well, we finally figured out where Fedor will land, and after the novelty of him announcing it at an event with crazy pride lady and fireworks wears off, I'm finding myself surprisingly disappointed. I mean, I was fine with the guy staying retired. He obviously is no longer in his prime by a long shot. But recently seeing Verdum as champ, Arlovsky's unlikely resurgent, Mir still knocking around, and the general geriatric age of the heavyweight division, something changed. I started to believe that a properly motivated and trained last emperor could have could have, have had a fighting chance to make a mark in the UFC. Are we, uh, and in parentheses, Fedor's legacy, better off with him fighting a few overmatched, mostly warm bodies in Japan and collecting some paychecks, or did we miss out on something that, that actually could have been pretty great? Am I crazy? Diz cuz, as the kids say. Um, I guess in retrospect, you can't really be surprised, right? No, I mean I think the last we time we t- I think the last time we talked about Fedor, uh, I kind of said I thought he would probably end up over in Japan fighting Sat- Satoshi I think, Ishii. I think again. What you said was that uh, what were the odds that Sakaki Barra runs in with a coconut and smashes oh, Scott Coker on the head? Yeah, so I was I was pretty close. And it, you're it, joking? It, you I mean, were right. The the uh, the deal they reached was more gentlemanly <laughs> than that, but uh, kind of the same deal. Uh, so Fedor, yeah, he's not signed to Bellator. He'll be fighting, I guess, in uh, Sakakabara's new, as yet unnamed, Japanese MMA promotion. Is that That's right? What it sounds like, but and it'll that, air on Spike that, TV. That fight will will air on Spike TV. Um, I would say that it's it's damn near a given that he's not going to fight any good anyone good, right? Who could they get? Like, well, we'll be lucky if it's Kimbo Slice. Otherwise, it'll be it'll be someone Japanese MMA style. You know, uh, and like, I guess we can cry in, in our breakfast cereal about what might have happened if he had come back and signed with the with the UFC at this late date. But I don't know, man, it just it doesn't seem that like that big of a deal to me. You know, I guess the only reason why and I don't even know if I would say it seems like a big deal, but I feel like 
like we got punked just for the last time by Fedor. By Fedor and those tricky Russians. I feel like And Jerry Millen. Oh, don't don't get me started. No, you know, that's the moment I think when you tell me like, okay, Fedor, New Year's Eve, Sakakibara is involved, a new Japanese promotion. Oh yeah, and Jerry Millen's there. That's the point where I'm like, all right, now I know exactly what to think of this and what to think is bullshit. There's nothing but bullshit out of this. Like that's the Jerry Millen is the straw that breaks the camel's back there. Because as soon as you see like professional MMA glomer on Jerry Millen involved, that's when you know this is not to be taken seriously. Uh, and I think that that's the thing is where it felt like, as we talked before, how MMA fans only get their wish in like this weird, twisted way where it's kind of Twilight zone and that seemed like the best reason to think that Fedor would end up in the UFC because, of course, he would only it would only happen now at right. the tail end of his career. And I guess I got my hopes up a little there and it seemed like the, the Fedor camp really did a pretty effective PR job of planting all the right seeds to get us to think that it was headed that way. Right. Well, it seems like, I mean, we're just guessing, I'm just guessing here now, but it seems like someone straight up lied to the, to the poor fellows over at Combat Press, right? Because they, they published <laughs> that story that Fedor had, had all but, or that he had signed with the UFC and they were just waiting to announce it, which, uh, being led astray by the people around the last emperor is, they're not the only ones. Let's just say that. No. Not the first time in history that a reporter has been duped by some guy in a tight jean jacket and stonewashed jeans. <laughs> I, but I feel like this one is the one where you can say, given his age and how many times stuff like this has happened before with him, this is the one where I say, all right, enough. I don't care anymore. I don't care what you, you do you anymore. You don't care about Fedor anymore? Nope. Come on. Hashtag we'll watch on Spike TV, New Year's Eve, if it's the Slice Man. Okay, I guess I would have to watch that under protest. I would have to watch him fight Kimbo Slice. All right. Well, let's let me ask you this though. Let's talk about this. Uh, Nobuyuki Sakakabara at one time, the the boss of Pride FC, uh, nominally at least. Nominally the boss, sure. Um, I guess I guess it depends on how how much credit you want to give him. But at one time, either slowly built or was in charge of the dominant mixed martial arts promotion in the world before it all fell apart because of uh, allegedly his. Yakuza ties or someone's Yakuza ties over there. Um, is it possible that he could do something similar to the same thing again? Or are we just dealing with such a changed MMA landscape that we basically we're dealing with one FC light? You know, I won't say it's impossible, but I'd say extremely unlikely. And I just wonder what the market is even like uh, in Japan right now for MMA. I mean, I know you can probably take Fedor back there. Uh, just the way you can take Josh Barnett back there, like the UFC is going to do, which we'll discuss later on in the show. And you can get some people to, to pile into the Saitama Super Arena to see that. But I just don't know if that necessarily equals a full-scale year-round revival that you could pull off there right now. Uh, and I also just don't know if, like, how would you do that given the contractual situations of all the major players right now? Who, where are you going to get your fighters from? Where are your stars coming from if you're trying to do that? I don't know. It sounds like more of a short-term thing going on right now. All right. Well, let's play hashtag Woodwatch with Fedor Emelianenko oh, uh, versus oh, Randy Couture. 52-year-old Randy Couture? Yes. The Randy Couture of today, not the Randy Couture of a time machine. I mean, when you say Woodwatch, I'll, I'll watch fucking anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you not, just ruined the game. Yeah. Like Zulu Zeno, you would watch. 
I mean, I want to say no to you. Kenny Wayne Shamrock. <laughs> no, I do not. I feel like that would make me an accomplice. <laughs> you would be an accessory after yes. the fact. I think you see you would can sit over there and say you don't care about Fedor, but you we're going to watch this thing on Spike TV just to see what's what. And you're probably going to feel a little twinge of nostalgia deep in your bowels and and find yourself once again sucked back into the Fedor train. I feel exactly what I felt when I saw the Tupac hologram, which is I can't believe I'm seeing this. It's kind of amazing. I wish they hadn't done it. That's what I'll feel when I see Fedor fight some nobody in Japan. Wow. Well, that's harsh, man. I don't I don't feel even nearly as that let down as that. Well, let's wait. Let's wait and you see him crush Kenny Wayne Shamrock's skull. Then see how you feel. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss in mixed martial arts from Tuesday to Thursday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. It's free. It comes straight to your inbox. Uh, you can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. The Breakfast of Champions. It's there for the taking. As for right now, though, Ben and I are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. One of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them where to look on the internet. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, we don't want to get all hyperbolic and say Phil Davis is back from the dead or something like that, but it seemed like his UFC career had kind of run its course. You know, we, we've talked a lot on the podcast about how he started out uh, early in his UFC career back in 2010 as a guy who seemed to have so much potential just because of his his natural aptitude, his size, uh, his mobility, his wrestling background. He seemed like a guy that could one day uh, maybe even give John Jones a run for his money if he continued to uh, progress. Uh, and he went a respectable 9-3-1 over about five years in the UFC, uh, but he never really got over that hurdle of being the guy that we thought could be the top contender. He ran, he, you know, ran a foul of UFC brass a couple of times. Uh, Dana White, I think, famously said he didn't want it enough or something like that. Uh, and then, like I said during the intro portion of the show, he had the, that loss to Anthony Johnson uh, at UFC 172 in April of 2014 that really felt like uh, kind of the litmus test for whether or not Phil Davis was going to be the guy at, at 
light heavyweight. Um, so he declines his U to extend his UFC contract. He contends he got a better offer from Bellator. Uh, he comes over for the one night four man, 205 pound tournament on Saturday night at Bellator. And man, did he fly through it like a knife through butter, defeating the former Bellator light heavyweight champion, Emmanuel Isaac Newton. Uh, but via first round submission. And then uh, he, he caught a replacement in the finals. Surprise, surprise. I think we'll talk a little bit more about how these four man tournaments, eight man tournaments, 16 man tournaments play out uh, during round two. But he got Frankie Cars, the Frenchman, the best wheel man in the game, Francis Carmont in the finals uh, and ended him ended up knocking him out two minutes and 15 seconds into the first round. Uh, it kind of felt like at least for those watching, and I guess we won't know the ratings for a while, but Phil Davis kind of rekindled all of his momentum in about seven minutes. Did it not? Yeah. I, you're totally right that it did feel like, not that his career was in the basement necessarily, but it did feel like we had seen the ceiling that he was going to reach uh, in the UFC light heavyweight division. Uh, and so he definitely needed some kind of shot of adrenaline there. And for that, you got to admit that the, the four man single night tournament is a really good way to do that for whoever comes out of it. Because even though you can put asterisks next to it, like he, he fought the replacement in the finals. I mean, he still beat two dudes in one night, finished them both in the first round. That sounds pretty good. It gives you a lot of momentum and it gives it to you in a hurry, especially when one of those dudes who you beat, you just tooled on the mat, and he happened to be the last Bellator light heavyweight champion. So it does kind of wake people up and remind them, oh yeah, Phil Davis, he seems like somebody worth paying attention to again. I, I mean, I guess the question is, is Phil Davis going to end up just becoming the Bellator light heavyweight champion and holding it down there? And is that ju just going to become a point for the UFC to point over there and say, see, that shows you how much better our fighters are than anybody else's fighters. That we have a guy who kind of hit his limitations in our light heavyweight division, couldn't even get, couldn't even earn a title shot here. He goes over there and he's by far the best light heavyweight they have. I think that's the danger. I feel like you've got a kind of a double edged sword here and that certainly that will be the UFC's uh, PR line, if anybody asks them about it. They don't uh, even have to say it. We're going to say it. <laughs> that's true. That's it's true. inevitable. Uh, and so, like, yeah, I think you run the risk of just making yourself look a little bit more like the UFC's kid brother organization if if we now enter the Phil Davis era of the Bellator light heavyweight uh, division. I mean, up to this point, though, and I think moving forward for a little while, it's still kind of a mutually beneficial situation for Bellator and for Phil Davis. Like we said, he just kind of rekindled his momentum and got got back on track. Uh, and it seems like a, a good look and a good place for him to be over there in Bellator. And Bellator now has a little bit of star power under the age of 40 years old uh, that it that it can, you know, put on its posters and it's and have high profile fights uh, with him. And I think the only way you could distance yourself from the idea that you are the UFC light or or the UFC's kid brother organization is if, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, a few more people start to cross the aisle because then right. then you start to become a little bit more not necessarily a full-fledged competitor but at least from a competition standpoint you would have a little bit more to offer and to be honest with you i don't think it would take as many people as maybe conventional wisdom says it would i don't think it's a matter so much of how many people as which people but i do think you're right that this could prove to be a little bit of a transition phase where not only do people see hey you can go over there the sponsor money is there now you can make a better payday in the end. 
uh, over in Bellator, but also, hey, look at Phil Davis. He couldn't get a title shot, couldn't get that big push, ran into kind of a roadblock in his division, and then he went over there and became maybe the best they have and is making a bunch of money to do it. That's going to be attractive to a lot of dudes, especially in the traditionally most competitive divisions, like lightweight. I, I mean, or, or welterweight. I can see a lot of those guys feeling like, okay, I, I'm seeing the writing on the wall here. And if you get, because I think one of the barriers that we've talked about in the past to getting fighters to think of the Bellator and the UFC on equal terms when it comes to thinking about their contract offers is in their heads, fighters still have that thing of, well, the UFC is, that's the show, man. It's, you don't want to be having to explain to people sitting next to you on airplanes from now for the next 10 years that you're in something that's like the UFC, but not quite the UFC. Right. Uh, and I think that psychological barrier can get worn down over time if you see more people do it. Yeah, and that's going to be maybe a tough one for Bellator to overcome. But I mean, I think in the short term, this this is a this is a good development for them and a good development for Phil Davis. Frankly, now you 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 also have Liam McGeary come out and get a, the win over Tito Ortiz in the main event, and McGeary, uh, while still still kind of a work in progress uh, on the feet, certainly uh, has maybe the nastiest guard in the light heavyweight division. Like I can't think of a guy who I feel like is, who has the second nastiest is guard more dangerous uh, than he is on the ground. And so he, you know, he taps out Tito Ortiz in, in, in pretty expeditious fashion once he finally gets the inverted triangle on him. And that's going to be kind of a cool fight. I feel like Liam McGeary against Phil Davis. And then even though it, it totally undermined excitement for the tournament on the night of, I think having Muhammad Lawal pull out with a rib injury, it's almost good, man, because yeah. it gives you an extra uh, uh, storyline to chase down. Like if Phil Davis becomes the champion, then you got Muhammad Lawal chirping about how he never beat him. And if Phil Davis loses, then his fight's still good, right? Uh, so like, I feel like this this tournament, while I think we're going to talk about some of the drawbacks with it in the next round, um, I still feel like I came out of this event feeling pretty positive about the product that Bellator gave us and how things came out for the promotion. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that that is one of the benefits of that four man tournament is it seems like enough of a crucible in your mind that whoever comes out of there, even if it's somebody who beats a replacement, who is actually a middleweight, you know, that still, that still feels like something in our minds and it still lends a little bit of extra excitement to everything that goes on around there. Uh, I do wonder though, you know, I think, when you see a Phil Davis versus Liam McGeary title fight, it would have been tough, I think, for you to to sell me too much on Liam McGeary's first or, or Liam McGeary's ongoing like title defenses in Bellator until we see we when we start to see the picture come into some clarity provided by stuff like the four man tournament. Now it seems like we're getting closer to finding out. What what sort of known quantity Liam McGeary is? I don't know if we really got it out of a Tito Ortiz fight. I think that's the 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 drawback of something like that because Tito Ortiz, the name, is going to bring some viewers, but we don't know exactly what to make of Tito Ortiz these days. And so when you go in there and you tap out Tito Ortiz off your back after being taken down by him, and you ask me what that tells me about Liam McGeary, I'm not totally sure. But a Liam McGeary versus Phil Davis fight? Now that's one. I will actually put on my calendar, which if you had told me that six months ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah, we talked about McGeary a little last week, but he at this point is 11-0 and after beating uh, Ortiz. His win before that was the big homie, Manny Newton. But prior to that, he's got three, four, five other fights in Bellator, but they're against Kelly and, and Anderson 
and then a dude who I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna try to pronounce a Ejugus via Vincius. So you said you weren't gonna try to pronounce it. And and I got myself off the hook, right? By saying that? <laughs> that's not it's how like that saying works. saying all due respect before you nope. insult somebody. No, no. It's that's that's not the same? No, it is not. Hmm. Well, I thought I would I would give it a shot anyway. Anyway, let's do uh Are You Fucking Kidding Me, maybe Ben, and then we will move on to round number two this week. Ben, uh what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Unless you had something else to add, unless you wanted to lay the second nastiest guard in the light heavyweight division on me. I noticed how you just ignored that one. Yeah, I was just gonna push right through that one. Okay. My, as if you didn't say that. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me, speaking of the stuff that went down this Bellator tournament. So after Phil Davis goes out there, wins this opening round fight, and looks just effortless in the process of taking apart the big homie Manny Newton. And then we get the customary required locker room interviews with both Mola Wall and Phil Davis, where we get our chance to see if their faces are swelling up yet, how they, how they look uh, heading into the next round, all that kind of stuff. And when we're interviewing Phil Davis, it is impossible not to notice that directly behind him, visible, like over his shoulder during his interview where he's talking about how easily he just won that first round fight is the big homie Manny Newton Aww. just sitting there looking heartbroken. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? You can just take the camera. You don't even have to ask Manny Newton to move. You just take Phil and have him turn his shoulders a little bit. Take the cameraman, have him take three steps to his left so that something else is in the background there. And then we're not all distracted by feeling so sad for Emmanuel Isaac Newton just sitting back there staring out into eternity as he thinks about his life. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Why'd you do that, Chad? Johnny Hendricks voice. Oh, man. Why you do that? Well, Ben, I also have to send my Are You Fucking Kidding Me out to Bellator and Spike TV uh, in an interview setting. But but mine is going to be for their announcement of Fedor returning to MMA action. Uh, I'm not sure how much Bellator actually had to do with it because it seems like uh, Sakaka Barra is off and running on his own thing over there in the city of Japan. Uh, but Spike definitely should have known better, I feel like. I don't know how on earth you plan a big live announcement inside the cage for an event that you you apparently want to make seem like a big deal uh and then you hand the live mic to two guys who do not speak english i don't know how that happens first first you have uh nobuyuki sakagabara out there confusing the shit out of jimmy smith and not answering anybody's questions and then after that you're like oh i know how we get this thing back on the rails I know how we save this live TV spot. Let's get Fedor Emelianenko out here and ask him some questions in English. <laughs> See what he's got to say. Are you fucking kidding me? That's not going to work. Fucking kidding me. Jeez, man. I like. I mean, I like my throwback MMA. I'm just not sure it extends to the terribly awkward interview segment. He was dressed sharp, though. Oh, he was. The man looked good. Yeah. Fedor, Fedor is, it seems to have gotten a stylist or something. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> or a new wife. You know, one of the two. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, round two of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. You know, people always be writing into us and saying, 
Chad and Ben, how you guys look so fly all the time. How it is that you smell so good, right? Smell so good. They can they can feel it through the airwaves. Through the podcast. Through their speakers. They can put up what we're putting down. Pick they up what we're putting down. They can hear it in a man's voice when he smells as good as we smell and looks as good as we look. And that is because the men's grooming and fragrance company, Fulton & Rourke, done hooked us up. That's right. In addition to using the highest quality ingredients available, each of their products is designed for the ways men get ready. They're travel-friendly, easy for being on the go, and extremely effective. Chad, their solid colognes, which use a wax uh, base instead of an alcohol spray, have been featured in GQ Details and Fast Company. That's right, Ben. Uh, Men's Health said that every man should have Fulton and Rourke at the ready in his office desk. And details, as you mentioned, called Fulton and Rourke a locker room essential. I have the shave cream, which I took with me to Iowa. And when I had to meet my wife's family, my in-laws, you know what I did? What'd you do? Fulton and Rourke shaved. And you, you pull that stuff out in Iowa, I bet you just blew those fucking farmers' minds. You're damn right I did. I look good. And they all knew it. Well, Chad... Good news for those farmers if they're listening. Fulton and Rourke has a special deal just for CME podcast listeners. If you go to FultonandRourke.com, you can save 15% of your total purchase by entering the coupon code DISCOURSE at checkout. Well, Ben, we looked at the Bellator Dynamite 1 card previous to it actually going down. Uh, and we saw about eight fights on the main card, albeit some of them slightly shorter kickboxing affairs. Uh, we looked at the inclusion of the light heavyweight one night tournament and we had some questions, man. So I guess just to open it up to kick off this, this round two, were you pro or con the inclusion of the kickboxing? And do you feel like there should be a Bellator dynamite two? You know, I would say I was neither strongly pro nor con the idea of mixing in the kickboxing. I thought, okay, sure. Why not? Let's see how that works, I guess. And I guess I was kind of wondering, is this going to be one of those situations where I show up not really caring either way and I get super into the kickboxing because it turns out to be awesome? Or is this going to be one of those things where I show up not caring either way and when I see it in practice, I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I don't. I'm not really a huge kickboxing fan. And it ended up being the latter. I wouldn't say like it was bad or anything, but it did feel like something I was just sitting through waiting for the MMA to start again. Yeah, you know, last week I, I said that I thought Bellator had played it smart by putting uh, Carrie Ann Taylor Melendez, uh, who's Gilbert Melendez's wife, obviously, and Paul Daly in those kickboxing matches because it was like, hey, MMA fans will have some people to glom onto, yeah, those recognizable hook. faces. Like after watching their fights and then after watching the actual light heavyweight kickboxing championship fight that occurred on the card, I thought, I feel like we did K or Glory maybe a disservice here because yeah. the actual kickboxing fight was like way better than the MMA people trying to kickbox. I know that Paul Daly is is a, a kickboxer and Carrie Ann Taylor Melendez has some kickboxing experience. Their fights were not particularly good on this card. And I feel like if we just would have gone with the straight up glory product that I'm sure the glory fans watch, you know, at every event, like maybe we would have actually been better off. Yeah, I felt that way too. Cause like you, I, I mean, I, you could see why they chose these fights that they had a little bit of a hook for MMA fans. But yeah, this was not necessarily the best that kickboxing had to offer. And it did seem like both those fights were kind of pretty much structured so that the MMA or the person that MMA fans were likely to know would win. And that's what happened in both those situations. So it seemed like. Yeah, not necessarily the best advertisement for kickboxing. It's also, I guess, weirder. I didn't expect to, to have this feeling 
but when I'm going from watching MMA to then watching a different combat sport, and there's still a part of my brain, like when somebody gets dropped and they step back and the referee comes in there and has them stand up and we have a little pause before they get back to their feet, a part of my brain is still like, oh, whoa, yeah, that's right. Other combat sports do that. That guy didn't just jump on the dude while he was down and begin smashing his skull into the ground. How weird. How weird that he wouldn't do that. Even though I came away not thrilled with the kickboxing portion of the card, and, and by God, by the time we were almost three hours into the thing, and I realized that that last kickboxing fight was a five-round championship fight, and I think I said, oh, you've got to be fucking kidding me out loud. Uh, <laughs> I assume in a hotel bar in Iowa. I'm, I'm still, you know, I, re- I, I like and respect the idea that Bellator is going to try to do weird shit, and that they're going to try to mix it up yeah. and have fun and be the like the no worries fun alternative to the UFC and I like that even though I suspect it made for a dreadful viewing experience in inside the arena I like that they had the cage and the ring I like that Bellator is going to try stuff like that and I encourage the promotion to keep trying stuff like that and I want to see like more chances taken from them on stuff like this in the future and if they came back with a dynamite dose next year with some more kickboxing or, you know, some grappling matches, whatever, whatever have you, uh, I would watch it and, and I would come at it with an open mind again, uh, not necessarily being totally turned off by the fact that I thought that this, this thing kind of boiled down to a slog after we got through the, the, the MMA side, MMA athlete kickboxing fights. Well, so if we're just, if you're th- floating the idea of throwing some grappling matches in there, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put it out there. Aikido demonstration. Bunch of dudes with wooden knives holding them like straight up above their head like that. Uh, like just running at a guy in those big hammer pant type things. It's funny that you mentioned that because not only while I was in Iowa this past week, when I was in a mall, there was going to be some board breaking. Oh, nice. Board breaking demonstration from a local taekwondo group. Uh, and the sensei, I don't know if you call a taekwondo teacher a sensei. But I think if you're trying to mock him, you sure, do. Sure. The sensei was walking around in his gi with his black belt and his iPhone clipped <laughs> onto his black belt. Yes. I also, when I was in Spokane the weekend before with my wife, we were at a brewery owned by a friend of mine, uh, the Perry Street Brewery in Spokane, tip for the well-rounded fight fan. You show up there, drink a beer. Uh, uh, Yell discourse. Yell, yeah, whatever, Maybe you'll get a whatever you want. Um, we were at the next table over. This like four people were having an intense notes being taken political discussion about their Aikido gym. <laughs> and it was awesome. It concluded with the old man, who I assume is the sensei, do you call it an Aikido instructor, the sensei? Like he, he. Just call everyone sensei. He clo- Let's get over it. Okay, sensei. He, he closed the meeting by saying something like, well, this news of Derek's insubordination troubles me. <laughs> like that was the kind of shit that they were talking about the whole time we were there. Oh, awesome. man. Wow. Where is their podcast? Cause I'm going to, I'm going to leave this one <laughs> midstream to go listen to that one. <laughs> Let's talk about the light heavyweight tournament. Uh, we want to do this again? We want to do a one-night four-man tournament? I'm going to say yes, even though uh, we ended up having Mo Lawal get pulled out because of his rib injury and having Frankie Cars. Uh, he was working a jackhammer 100 feet below the city trying to break into a <laughs> bank vault from underneath when he got the call that he had to race back to the arena. But he's the best wheel man in the game, so you know he made it on time. Yeah. During his walkout, he's like, what? I've been here the whole time. What, you know, what are you guys talking about? I, I Like you, I, I feel like w- watching it, I both remembered, oh, yeah, this was why this was exciting, and this is also why we don't do it anymore. Because it is – I kind of forgot how 
it can give anything an extra little kick of meaning and significance. Even when you're watching like this two-round fight and a couple minutes into Mola Wall's fight with Linton Vassal, you know Mola Wall's winning that. It's just a, a matter of if it's going to go to decision or if he's going to finish it off and try to get out of there a little more quickly. Uh, but when you know, okay, these guys are going to fight and then he's going to have to fight later and there's all these other considerations that suddenly come into it, that does make it more interesting. And it it makes me care about fighters who I might otherwise have a hard time caring about. So there is that appeal to it. At the same time, though, there are just so many ways for it to screw up. Like, I mean, imagine if both guys get injured and they can't go. Like, that could easily happen. I think that if you're going to do it again, maybe the thing to do is to pay a little more attention to the reserve bout and not think about the reserve bout as just some backup plan that you will probably not use. Think about it as something that you will almost certainly use. Right, yeah. And if you do that and you you not only think that way with uh, regards to who you select for that reserve bout, but also maybe bring it to our attention a little more, and then it just becomes another potential piece in play. Like it's another thing for us to think about that's kind of interesting rather than not really mentioning it until you need it. I, I think that if we can approach it with a more realistic sense of how this shit is probably going to go, it could be a lot of fun. But it's also the kind of fun you want to have sparingly. Yeah. And maybe even throw a different weight class at us next time so we can see some of these Bellator guys that we don't know that much about. Maybe that would, uh, you know, get us, get us hooked on them. Before we wrap the roundup, though, I did also want to mention another thing that I thought Bellator did well, at least early on, during this broadcast, kind of against all odds, was number one, having like a disembodied third party host for the event, which was almost always terrible. I didn't think that this one was that bad. And then like handling the switching between broadcast teams of having uh the guy, the play-by-play announcer named Sean, who sounds exactly like the other play-by-play <laughs> announcer named Sean that Bellator fired for whatever reason to bring in this new guy. Uh, and Jimmy Smith and then just kick, feel like we need to change Sean's. Yeah. Just kick. Then they would, they would kind of like transition over to Marl Ronaldo and, and Steven Quadros. Like I thought all of that went pretty well. Yeah. Surprisingly enough. And like that could have been a huge disaster and it wasn't. So kudos to them for that. I think. Yeah. The only thing that made me wish was when they'd switched to the kickboxing, I'd hear Mauro Ronaldo and I would just wish Mauro Ronaldo was also calling the MMA fights. Well, that ouch for the new Sean, man. Well, another new him. Sean. But come on, as long we got Len Hart in there doing a crazy pride lady scream, throw Morrow on there. He's already there. You already paid for his flight. Come on. If they had not put out a press release, nobody would even know that they had a new Sean, right? Like, <laughs> and we would all just assume that that was still Sean Wheelock or whatever his name was, and he got like a slightly different haircut, right? <laughs> I, I mean, mean, he sounds exactly like him, doesn't he? I wouldn't have known. Just saying. I just we just just saying stuff right there. Uh that's gonna do it for round number two. We're gonna move on to round number three. That starts right now. After the UFC stealth canceled a couple of events on us this week or this month, I guess, uh, we're finally going to get Fight Night 75 live from the Saitama Super Arena, 
with a main event featuring Josh Barnett against Big Country Roy Nelson. Josh Barnett comes in immediately off his loss to Travis Brown, uh, and he's fighting Roy Nelson, who is actually one and four in his last five fights and has back-to-back losses to Alistair Overeem and Mark Hunt uh, in his most recent fights. I guess I got to ask, is this a must-win situation for Roy Nelson, or are we just are we even past that? Does it even matter for him? Like, could Roy Nelson lose this and then just continue with the business of being Roy Nelson? Well, I think especially we have to do a little bit different math when we're talking about heavyweights in the UFC these days because you don't necessarily want to go casting off heavyweights at a time when Bellator has made it clear that they'll kind of take whoever you got, man, and in a lot of instances, spin that straw right into gold. So uh, you you probably want to be careful about thinking of it in terms of a loser leaves town match. I don't even think we're, we're doing that anymore, especially in that division, because it's already so thin and so very, very old, as we've talked about in the past. However, if you want to do something, like if, you, if your goal is to do something more than just hang around, uh, then, yeah, you don't want to lose three in a row, man. But then again, this is the, we've seen this kind of fight a lot in these kinds of situations, and especially in the heavyweight division, it seems, where, as I think I've referred to it in the past, kind of negative stakes bouts, where it's not like either one of these guys is winning this fight and it's propelling him to new and great heights. You're just winning this fight to keep from sinking down any lower, which is you know not necessarily not compelling uh, for us as viewers. Ah, uh, here's how shallow the UFC heavyweight division is. Roy Nelson. How shallow is it? One and four, as we just said in his last five fights, currently ranked number 11. Huh, okay. Immediately behind Frank Mir and at number nine, Alistair Overeem. So it could be worse for big country <laughs> okay. Roy Nelson. Let's just, let's just put it that way. He could be 155 pound country Roy Nelson at which he probably would already would have been cut. From oh yeah. The UFC long ago. And also his insubordination troubles the UFC. <laughs> right. Uh, let me also lay this on you. Did you know this Joshua Lawrence Barnett? That's it. That's what you're going to lay on. Unless them? someone at Wikipedia is just messing with us. Well, that's the subtlest hack ever, if that's if that's really what they're doing. I think that's a, a misuse of, of somebody's company time. That, but that doesn't that seem like a missed opportunity for the babyface assassin Larry Barnett? <laughs> Going back years, right? We could we, we could have known Jay Lawrence Barnett this whole time. Well, when he decides to put out his poetry chat book, Jay Lawrence Barnett is going to be the way you want to go with that. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Although, here's what I wonder about this fight. He asked me to pick a winner here. I'm going to pick Josh Barnett every time, just seeing how the skills match up. I wonder, though, it's been almost two years since Josh Barnett last fight, fought since that, that loss against Travis Brown. In the intervening time, he hasn't seemed terribly interested in mixed martial arts competition. He's been doing other stuff, uh, been getting in, into training fighters a little bit more. I, I do wonder where his head's at. And what exactly is his goal right now? That would worry me with almost anyone else, but that has kind of been Josh Barnett's MO this entire time. He's always been a guy who's had other interests and seemed like he could kind of take or leave mixed martial arts. Like uh, the whole time that he was, that we we felt as though he was banished from the UFC because of, uh, you know, a dicey personal relationship between himself and, and Dana White. Like any time every anyone would ask him about it, he would kind of be like, "Yeah, I don't care. Like they have my number. Like if they want me, they can come. They can come call me." Because he always had, you know, he was fighting in Strike Force and 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 Pride, and always had other 
uh, financial outlets, man. Like, you know, pro wrestling. And, and now he's the, the Meta Morris heavyweight grappling champion, which frankly, if you're Josh Barnett, you probably think that's the coolest thing in the world to be able to bill yourself as a heavyweight grappling champion. Uh, and so he's a guy who's always been kind of able to pick it up and put it down whenever he wanted to. Now, does he always come to the cage in the greatest shape and the greatest headspace of all time? No, but like you said, he's fighting Roy Nelson here, so I would pick him all day and twice on Sundays. I still feel like he gives fewer fucks now. Even fewer than before? Even fewer. Well, I suppose that might be uh, true. I mean, and maybe natural, just because like Dana White, he's now older and you know more mature has to know all the facts has to know all the facts first and 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 you know i would not say josh barnett has ever been a guy who gave a ton of fucks he's always seemed like uh one of the smarter fighters out there uh and a guy who like i said is a, like kind of a renaissance man in terms of his interests and just uh never really seemed like he was going to get that worked up about about mma fighting so if to hear you say you feel like he gives less of a fuck now it's a little bit surprised to me. Why do you say that? Why do you get the vibe that he now cares less than he did before? I feel like maybe he, and here's me just kind of speculating wildly, but maybe it's gotten to the point where he has seen the, the end of the MMA road rushing up on him a little more. And so has started to think maybe more broadly outside of it. Cause I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember when he was in that strike force heavyweight tournament and they were in Cincinnati and I went around with him when he bought the new jacket uh, and wrote a story on that for MMA Fighting where Eric Paulson was just the the delightful comic relief throughout. And that was also a, during that same similar kind of time period when he was doing the, hey, the UFC has my number kind of thing. But then the UFC had recently bought Strikeforce, very recently, uh, and that tournament was still going on. And I remember then when we were kind of just talking, like sitting there over dinner talking, then you could see some hints of the frustration come out a little bit. Like, and, uh, you know, I thought that there were other outlets that I, where I didn't need the UFC. Then the UFC buys up strike force. Now it's starting to feel like my career is in the hands of fewer and fewer people and my options are, are limiting. And you could see him being a little more frustrated with it. Then now, I don't know if he's just made his peace with that. And I think maybe him not exactly rushing back into the cage after that Travis Brown fight is kind of indicative of it. But it just seems like it doesn't occupy the same place of importance in his life that maybe it once did. And to that, I would say, good, man. Like, right. that is probably, like, psychologically the healthiest thing you could do right there, uh, especially if you're Josh Barnett. But it does make me wonder, then, you know, what what the long-term plan is. Like, if I'm sitting there at the job interview with Barnett and I ask him where he sees himself in five years, you know, what's his answer? I'm just a real perfectionist, man. Real hard on myself. <laughs> you asked me what my worst quality was or what my, what my, you know, I, I think you, you, you pulled the string and got the wrong answer there. I think that that is the, the what you say, sir, about Josh Barnett is probably true. Uh, but like we were saying also about the heavyweight division at the start of this round, uh, you win a fight or two in this thing and you are right back in the thick of it. Like nobody would have expected Fabricio Verdum to be the champion or Andre Arlovsky and Ben Rothwell and Mark Hunt uh, and and all those guys to be at the top of the division. Like I just named all the dudes who are in front of Josh Barnett <laughs> in the UFC top 10, except for Cain Velasquez, Travis Brown and Stipe Miocic, who I, I would give you are the biggest worries probably uh, if you're in that division, but like, Hey man, you're Josh Barnett. 
if you want to, and you beat you beat Roy Nelson here, you get one more fight against one of these guys in the top five or six, and you win that one. Shoot, man, you're knocking on the door. Yeah, but again, I mean, like if you like if you ask me where Ben Rothwell's head is at these days, I'll tell you. Like, oh yeah. It's, you it's know, wearing a cape and holding a, a, a kitty <laughs> and doing that laugh, right? Doing that laugh with the UFC heavyweight title. That's where he sees himself. You know, whether you think that's going to happen or not, that there's no question there, like where exactly where his focus is. And uh, with Josh Barnett, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't seem that way, which again, like I think probably seems for where he is right now, like probably the healthiest way you could possibly approach it. Um, yeah, going to bolt thrower shows and collecting Mustangs and the not, car, not the horse, not, not wearing a single sleeve on his t-shirts during any of that. So yeah, there you go. Anything else? Spin your beanie on this, uh, UFC fight night 75 in Japan thing. The, uh, the young vagabond, the vagabond is back. He's fighting Uriah Hall. That's, That's right. nothing to sneeze at. No, it's not. That could, that could be interesting or could be two guys staring at each other. Wait, yeah. Just waiting for the. The fence to dry. The paint on the fence to dry. Are you coining a new phrase right now? <laughs> Don't I always? Well. Not a week goes by. I'm over here innovating. Some are more successful than others. You're over there player hating. <laughs> All right, let's do uh, just sand stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. <laughs> oh, I cracked myself up with that one. Uh, <laughs> Take a minute if you need it. Take a minute and enjoy your own handiwork. Well. Let's see, I hate to, to roll off that and, and into my just saying stuff, which I know is going to is gonna hit you right where you live as the webmaster of, of FleshyRealm.tv, right? Uh, but we got a lot of stuff for sale, a lot of beer koozies, if anybody's interested. I'm just a lot saying, of beer koozies. I guess, they're they're, they're kind of overstock right now. I guess I'm, this week I'm just saying, are we getting close to the point where we got to pour out a little liquor for the big homie, Emmanuel Isaac Newton? Uh, because you know I got mad love for the big homie and it endures. But now that we start seeing him fighting guys like Phil Davis and kind of getting handled on the mat, I have to start to wonder if all of the coincidences and the deja vus and the universe having his back of his previous Bellator career had a lot to do with the universe also continuing to serve him up dudes like Mikhail Zayats and Attila Vey twice. And Joey Beltran and Linton Vassal and King Mo twice. King Mo twice. That's those are uh, th- those are the biggest wins, I suppose. But you know, I still I still loves me some big homie. But I don't know, man. I feel like I'm gonna have to start realigning my own perceptions and deja vus here if if this trend continues. I'm just saying. How dare you? You know, it's gonna be worth it. All this struggle is gonna be worth it just to hear the interviews he gives when he comes back for his next fight after that. Because well, you know it's going to be Struggle awesome. or no struggle, that would be worth it. Yes. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I don't know if you've heard some recent comments from Misha Tate, but she's kind of making a lot of sense. Talking about uh, her situation with the UFC, where, you know, as you recall, she was basically promised a title shot, third fight with Ronda Rousey. Then the UFC yanked it afterwards and said, oh, wait, never mind. Um, and uh, then decided that, she was going to go ahead and fight Amanda Nunes, to which Misha Tate said, nuh uh. And in a recent interview, she said that she was very frustrated with the UFC. I feel like, or 
I'm not in a position where I feel like I need to be pushed around as a state. I, like, you take this fight, you take that fight. It makes no sense to me. I'm not the champion. That I'm fighting all the number one contenders. And Nunes is ranked four in the world, home number eight in the world. What is wrong with that picture? I'm not the champion, yet I'm fighting better girls than the champion is fighting. And I'm not getting paid what the champion's getting paid. That is the champion's job, to fight the best girls in the world. So when I am champion, then we'll talk. I don't know. I'm in a very awkward stage in my career right now where I don't know what it is the best, the, what is the best next step for me, but I know that I'm not going to be pushed around by anybody. More things have to be contractually agreed upon instead of verbally. That's what happens when you can't come to a verbal trust point. I'm going to have to have things written down from now on. Now, I'm just saying, right on, Misha Tate, you're making a lot of sense. And I'm also just saying, having stuff written down... That should kind of be everybody's approach. That's why you're supposed to have contracts and stuff in this business. I'm just saying maybe fighters have gotten a little too comfortable with the practice of just verbally agreeing upon stuff and just trusting that the UFC is going to take care of you down the line somewhere. I'm just saying. Just saying. Is she slyly doing a thing where she's not saying Ronda Rousey's name in there? Just calling her the champion over and over again? Maybe. Maybe you got a point there. That'd be kind of a sweet move. I think that is. I think that I would be totally into that if that is indeed what she's doing. That sounds like the kind of thing you'd be into. Just right up your alley. Subtle digs. Watching the paint dry. <laughs> On the fence. Yeah. Are we done here? Yeah. We are. I'm just over here innovating. <laughs> oh, man. Get you a rock star on the way home. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to talk about all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 75 from Japan. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So I got a, I got a question about the Taekwondo board breaking. Robert Drysdale. Second best guard? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've never actually seen Robert Drysdale fight because he <laughs> tested positive for roids twice and, and got bounced from the UFC. But Robert Drysdale. Did the guy take the iPhone off his laptop when it was time to break See, shit? unfortunately, we could not stick around for the what? actual board breaking. What? We had to go. We had a three-year-old that was having a meltdown. So we were out. So, we were about to go.